0: Well, I hope you've uh, been finding those little animations that we've been using week by week in this series so far really helpful. They're from the Bible Project. In fact, the whole of the Bible is animated uh, if you want to look it up. And our animation today takes us as far as chapter 7. So you've got the context before we launch into our teaching this morning, which is all in and around chapter 8. Well, as you've just heard, things are in a bit of a mess, aren't they, for the people of God. Uh, They've chosen to worship other gods. The leaders have become corrupt and the vulnerable, the most vulnerable in society, are being taken advantage of. God's people have embraced what they should have rejected and they've rejected what they should have embraced. God's people have wandered from that narrow path which leads to life abundant, that path that Jesus spoke of, and instead they find themselves on the wide path. And Jesus says that wide path only leads to one place, it leads to destruction. And it's into that context that Jeremiah is sent to deliver this very hard message. It's a message that demanded that people repent and that people change their lives, Jeremiah's message is tough, it's, it's uncompromising, but two, it's a message of incredible hope. It's a message which is awash with the grace of God, as we'll discover in the next couple of weeks as we continue our journey through Jeremiah. Of course, then, as now, people generally don't respond terribly well to messages that are directed to them personally about behavioural change. I know that to be true in my own life. Maybe that's true in yours. Perhaps your response, as it's been mine in the past, is, well, who are you to tell me what to do? Who do you think you are? I'm my own person, and you know what? I can make my own decisions, So, thank you for your advice, but I'm going to leave it. And yet, as Jeremiah shares this message, we see his heart for God and his heart for God's people. As he declares this message, he's doing so with a bucket full of tears in his eyes. Listen to what it says in chapter 9 of verse 1. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain or for the slaughter of my people. The sense you have here is he's cried so much. Actually, there are no more tears that are left to cry. What we learn from Jeremiah chapter nine verse one is that Jeremiah is a man with a massive heart for the people of God. He cried, he he wept, buckets, swimming pools of tears. What's significant here is that what broke God's heart was also breaking Jeremiah's heart. Well, this morning I'd love for us to, to wrestle with a question. And the question is this is what is it that breaks your heart? What is it that breaks your heart? What is it that brings you to your knees in prayer? You see, whatever it is that breaks your heart the most or perhaps causes you to pray the most is probably your passion. And if you've got a passion, it's very likely a God-given passion. And when you discovered your passion, you can then discover your mission. And when you discover your mission, you'll go on to discover your deepest joy in life. What breaks your heart most often is that that you most love. Now, before you answer that question today, what most breaks your heart, let me inform you what it was that caused Jeremiah to weep so abundantly. I hope that what you'll see is that the things which broke Jeremiah's heart were the very same things that were breaking the heart of God too. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment this morning that the same things that broke Jeremiah's heart should necessarily be the things that break yours. But what I do hope that you'll see this morning is that you'll see the link between passion and mission, that you'll see the link between passion and mission, and then the ongoing call of God in your life. I don't know if you've ever found this, but discerning exactly what it is that God is calling me to, what it is he's calling me to join in with, is not always easy. And I want to suggest today that pursuing your passions, your God-given passions, is often a good place to begin to discover your calling. The first thing we see in our text today is that God's people had embraced what they should have rejected. Listen to these words from chapter 8, verse 4 through to verse 7. It says this, say to them, this is what the Lord says. When people fall down, they do, not, do they not get up? When someone turns away, do they not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit, they refuse to return. I've listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, what have I done? Each pursues their own course like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons. And the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. So Jeremiah, or God through Jeremiah, says to God's people in verse 5, why have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? Why do they cling to the sea and why do they refuse to return? You see, the people in Jeremiah's day had turned their backs on God. And whenever we turn our backs on God, we face or we focus on everything but God. They refuse to repent. They refuse to turn around. In fact, as you read the story, you discover they've got no desire whatsoever to return to God, despite the fact they've been given ample opportunity to do so. Instead, the the people deliberately charged ahead in their sinful practices, worshipping idols, even engaging in some of them practices like child sacrifice. And they've got absolutely no idea of the dangers that are involved. You get the sense here that when they're in the temple and gather together, they're very much holier-than-thou people. But the minute they leave that temple or leave Jerusalem, their behavior outside was pretty shocking there's terrible hypocrisy going on here. So Jeremiah reminds them of a message that I think we would do well to remember in our own journey of faith. When we fall down, we should get up again. When we fall down, we should look for the hand of God that's ready and willing to pull us back up. When we take the wrong road, we should turn around and we should get back on the right road. When we take the wrong road, we should go straight to God for, to ask for directions. Maybe God is a bit like our satnav, spiritually speaking. You see, Jeremiah makes the point here in verse 7 that even comparatively unintelligent birds know when it's time to migrate. Even comparatively unintelligent birds know how to do the right thing instinctively. What's his point? Well, God's people should be just as obedient to God's instruction. We should stand up when we fall down. We should go to God and ask for uh, forgiveness when we sin. Now, I don't know about you when you're on a journey, but I know about myself that I can Bria, be a pretty stubborn navigator when we're on a long road trip. Even if it doesn't feel like we're right going the right way, or worse still, all of the signs tell me that we're going the wrong way, My strategy in life is to carry on regardless rather than stop for even one minute to find out if we're actually on the right course. My philosophy with travel is better to keep the wheels turning than to stop and admit some kind of defeat or that we're wrong. And God's people were being equally stubborn here in our story as they navigated the journey of faith. Now, I say all of this to make a significant point of application. Perhaps one of the greatest traps for us as Christians is that we practice confession of sin, but we don't practice repentance. We practice the confession of sin, but we don't practice repentance. And there's a world of difference between the two, and yet these two things need to walk hand in hand. Let me try and explain what I mean by that. So we sometimes are ready and willing, and we're eager to take the words of One John chapter one, verse nine. If we confess our sin, then Jesus is faithful and just and he will forgive us of our sins and he'll purify us of all unrighteousness. Yay, praise God for that line of Scripture. I'm so glad that it's there. And yet there's a risk for us in our journey of faith that we don't go any further than that one verse of Scripture. We can fail to, heal, uh, to, to, to heed to Jesus' words in Luke chapter 5, verse 32. I've come, not to, to, I've come not to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. I wonder if you've ever treated repentance as if it's a one-time, once-in-a-lifetime act. Do you know what I mean? Repentance is what you do only at conversion, and then after that, all that you need is confession, how many times have you found yourself repeatedly confessing the same sin to God and wondering why on earth you can't overcome it? At times like this, perhaps we can feel a bit trapped in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Paul says this, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. Such well-penned words that so often sum up our Christian journey. Well, what is it that's missing in that equation? What is it that can get us out of that vicious circle that we can find ourselves stuck in? I think the missing link is genuine repentance, which is different but related to confession. The point Jeremiah is making in our text today to God's people is exactly the same point that Jesus is making in Luke chapter chapter 5. Jesus doesn't want us to just acknowledge our sin, important as that is. He doesn't want us just to say, hello, sin, and do nothing more. But he wants us to turn from our sin and to walk away from it. And in a sense to say, goodbye, sin. Remember, Jesus is refrained so often to those who he forgave. Go and sin no more. In other words, turn around, walk away from sin. Don't just say hello, but wave goodbye. That's repentance. Repentance is a 180 degree turn where we walk purposefully in a direction towards God in the opposite direction from our sin. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart. It's a turning from sin and sinful practices to God repentance is heartfelt sorrow for the sin that we wrestle with, followed by a sincere commitment that we're going to forsake it and that we're going to seek to walk as the Spirit empowers us in obedience to Christ. It's not about merely feeling remorse or guilt, but it's about a change of direction. It's no wonder, is it, that Jeremiah here is weeping over the response of God's people. They hadn't even acknowledged that there's a problem. They hadn't even said hello to their sin, let alone wave goodbye to it. Confession and repentance go hand in hand. But I want to say this morning too that repentance is the most amazing gift of grace. Sometimes we, when we repent, we can feel somewhat reluctant to do it, but it's a gift of God given to us by his grace. And repentance is not so much um, a moment or or an event, but actually it's a never-ending privilege, a never-ending invitation to walk in the grace of God. A repentant person longs to live their destructive past just as much as a slave is wanting to leave his galley or a a prisoner is wanting to leave their dungeon or a beggar is just wanting to leave their rags repentance sets us free. That's God's grace. And when we've truly repented, we can experience a changed life. I really love the words of Hebrews chapter 12, which make the point that confession and repentance are purposeful acts that go together and are all about focusing on Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse one, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Aren't those words beautiful? Purposefully walking away from our sin that will entangle us and focusing our eyes on Jesus. So firstly, sin broke Jeremiah's heart in exactly the same way that it breaks the heart of God. What was the solution? The solution, Jeremiah says, is repentance, but to confession, turning our back to sin and fixing our eyes on God or on Jesus. And I don't know for you today if you're maybe stuck in some sort of a sin problem. As I said about being stuck in that vicious cycle, maybe you know that's to be true of a particular area of your life. Maybe like God's people, you find yourself in some areas of your life embracing what you should be rejecting. We all do it. Well, I want to say to you today that God has seen enough of your back over that particular issue, and he'd love to see your face. And because he's a God who's so full of grace, you don't need to feel any shame when you turn and face the, uh, and look at God and put your back to your sin. Fix your eyes on Jesus and purposefully walk towards him. Confession and repentance, walking hand in hand, that's where you find freedom. Well, the second thing that broke Jeremiah's heart was a rejection of God's word the rejection of the very thing that God's people should be embracing. Let's read on from the second half of verse 7 three to verse 14. It says this, But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. How can you say we are wise, for we have followed the law of the Lord, when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and will be trapped. Since they've rejected the word of the Lord, What kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wounds of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. They will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There'll be no figs on the tree and there'll be no, uh, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken away from them. Jeremiah wrote in verse 8 that God said, since they have rejected the word of the Lord, he asked a rhetorical question, well, what kind of wisdom do they have? Well, the answer to the rhetorical question is really obvious, isn't it? What kind of wisdom were they living by? Well, it probably wasn't the wisdom that God was wanting to give them, and that's proven by their actions. You see, God's people had a problem, and I wonder if this sounds at all familiar. The people possess the word but they did not practice the Word. The people possessed the Word of God, but they didn't practice the Word of God. Isn't it interesting that year in, year out, the Bible is still the bestseller throughout the world? 3.9 billion copies of the Bible have been sold in the last 50 years. What a staggering number, 3.9 billion. It outstrips Harry Potter by 4.5 billion copies. And yet, despite the Bible's popularity still we find ourselves wrestling with moral problems and spiritual challenges like never before. Well, I guess we could say there seems to be little connection between what people say they believe, or at least their book-buying habits suggest they believe, against the way that people act. I wonder if the problem could be that whilst we might read God's Word or even own God's Word, we might even believe God's Word, there's sometimes a reluctance to practice The word of God. Of course, whenever we point the finger at somebody else and say, Look what you're doing, you need to change your ways, there are at least three fingers pointing back at ourselves. And that's true for me this morning. James states the challenge very plainly in chapter 1, verse 22 of James. He says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. In other words, read and act. There's a consistent theme within the Gospels. Jesus' heart was broken so often because the scribes and the Pharisees, the self-professed students of God's word, the academics of their day, did not practice the word of God. They were ready and they were willing to argue and debate the scriptures until the cows came home. They even had the audacity to tell everybody else what the application of God's word was. But Jesus says to them, you're not even practicing this word yourself. This word might be in your head, but it's certainly not impacting your heart. You have a knowledge of the law, but you're not applying it. You've got the possession, but you don't have the practice. I wonder if you remember the response to all this when Jesus told a parable. He told the parable about the wise and the foolish builder. And the house on the sand fell down. You remember the one? His point was that both builders were like the person who possessed the word of God. Both had possession of the word of God, but only one of them, the wise builder, had taken the extra step of practicing or applying the word that he'd received. In the verse immediately before James challenges us about applying God's word in James one twenty-two, which I mentioned a moment ago, he tells us how to avoid the trap of not applying God's word in the first place. He says, you avoid the trap by humbly accepting the word that's planted in you because it's a word that can save you. Humbly accept the word planted in you. The word accept here means to welcome or to beckon in, to accept God's word. First, we must welcome his word into our lives. We've got to give that word our full attention. We have to acknowledge that it's there. But to really welcome that word takes humility, and it takes a desire to be changed by that word that we're welcoming. The picture I have in my mind is a a post-COVID picture. Imagine for a moment that your friend or a close family member or a relative or whatever is coming to your front door when all the restrictions are over. Can you imagine that day? The day will come one day. The restrictions are all gone, and the risk of COVID has disappeared. You haven't been in close contact with this person for 12 to 18 months. I wonder how will you greet them? Well, you'll greet them, of course, with a massive, long, lingering hug and a a greeting of incredible affection. That says James, that says Jeremiah, that says Jesus, all in unison. That is how we're to welcome the word of God into our lives. With a long, lingering embrace or a hug. We shouldn't be leaving the Word of God stood on the doorstep, shivering in the cold when we haven't seen it for such a long time. Why is that important? Because when we begin to put God's Word into practice, it begins to change our hearts. When we put God's Word into practice, we'll start to see people as Jesus saw people. When we put God's Word into practice, we'll hurt over the injustices in the world that God's heart hurts over. When we put God's word into practice, we'll be sensitive to the disenfranchised, to the lonely, to the abused, to the neglected. When we put God's word into practice, we'll find ourselves crying for the lost and crying for those who don't know him. When we put God's word into practice, we'll feel deeply with a massive passion about reaching the world for Jesus. As I draw towards a close I want to just share a few thoughts that are somewhat punctuated by the question that I invited you to wrestle with this morning. You see God uses people most powerfully who have broken hearts. I wonder if you'll allow your heart to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. You know of all the uh, the prophets in the Old Testament I think Jeremiah is the one who I'd most long to spend some time with and to be around. Why do I think that? Because he lets us in on his feelings in a way that the other prophets don't seem to. Jeremiah is not simply a detached observer of what's happening to God's people, but he allows himself to get physically and emotionally, even spiritually involved in everything that happens to the people of God. What a contrast to somebody like Jonah who didn't even want to go and then went off and was angry and sulked in the corner. I wonder if there's something that breaks your heart that's happening in the world today. Maybe it's an injustice. Maybe it's an issue. Maybe it's a cause. Maybe it's an opportunity to engage in a mission or a particular ministry. If that thing is breaking your heart, can I suggest to you today that that's probably your passion? I wonder if you'll be willing to get involved with your passion beyond that of a detached observer. Will you allow yourself to weep as God weeps over that particular cause that he's given you a burden for? Will you allow your passion to become your mission? Will you allow your passion to become your ministry? You know, Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet, and he's referred to that way for a good reason, because he's got an awful lot that he can weep about. And he does it in such a way that as Jeremiah pens the very words of God or even the words of himself, it's difficult to determine the difference between the two, whether his thoughts are God's words or God's words are his thoughts. You see, Jeremiah's pain is God's pain. God's pain is Jeremiah's pain. And if we spend too much time in the company of God, then we'll end up finding that actually God's pain becomes our pain too. That's how it works. I wonder. Will you allow God's pain to become your pain? You see, Jeremiah was right there, wasn't he? In the trenches with the people, despite the fact that they weren't even listening to his warnings, he's still ready and he's still willing to suffer with them. It's gonna take great physical and emotional um, endurance for Jeremiah to hang in there, but he knows from the outset that this whole task of prophecy wasn't exactly gonna be a walk in the park, but he commits nonetheless. Jeremiah is a man who's ready and willing to stand with his people right to the bitter end. I wonder, will you stand with the lost, with the last, with the lonely and with the least? Will you stand with the poor, the orphan, the the, the widow and the person on the edge? There are so many ways, aren't there, that we can do that within the life of the church here or even more widely in this area of BCP. Maybe your passion is going to lead you to work with the food bank. Maybe your passion is going to help you volunteer with safe families. Maybe your passion is going to lead to a ministry which engages you in the ministry of the church here with children or with adults or with older people, maybe with the isolated, with the sick, with the dying, with those who mourn. Maybe your passion today, your God-given passion is going to lead you into a mission and a ministry which is all about care of God's creation. Maybe your passion is leading you into world mission. I just wonder whether or not your passion is gonna lead you to be in world mission somewhere else in the world, if not here in Christchurch. You know, the list is endless and I could stand here for the next hour and list all the ways that your passion could turn into mission and how your mission could fill you with the deepest sense of joy. We're gonna sing a song together. In fact, I'm gonna invite you to listen to the song and not sing it. And I want to invite you to make this song your prayer this morning. The chorus says this, heal my heart and make it clean. There's something there about confession. There's something there about repentance. Heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am all that you've made me to be, Lord, for your kingdom's cause as I walk from earth into eternity.